G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch. Great to have you on board for episode 101. If you haven't already listened to our 100th episode, it's with weather presenter and journalist Jessica Braithwaite, who also has released their debut single, Feel This Way, in the last year or so. That's back in episode 100. Today, we're heading to a guest I've wanted to have a chat with since 2016. Back then, a song called Mint Green was out and about, and now there's a radio edit of it. He's known as a pianist and composer. The New York Times says quarter pounder with keys. Andrew Shapiro, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you, John. You join us on a reworking or a radio edit, as we like to say in the industry, of the tune Mint Green. How vital is Mint Green, a six-minute piece, in your repertoire? And how, how does Mint Green represent you, the, the original version versed? Well, I, I think that, um, I mean, if you added up all of the play on all of the streaming services or radio for every single thing other than that that I've written, and I've written a lot of music, it would be dwarfed by just how much that track has been streamed. When I wrote it, I certainly didn't think it was going to, to resonate to the extent that it did. It was one of 14 pieces I put on my first piano album in 2009. It was really Pandora that broke the song open for me because I got a statement and um, it just said like in one quarter that I had over three and a half million plays of this track Man Green. And until then, the ether hadn't spoken to me in any way like that like it never even occurred to me that that was even possible that a sort of art piano composition could could get that that amount of streams i think it just crossed 10 million you know things get i, I was t- talking with a with an agent recently i said things get very messy very quickly because we're talking about Ming green and now i can start talking about streaming platforms and i can talk about one streaming platform over the other and then suddenly we're into all into these other issues but i think that pandora was actually really good for me because the algorithms just worked and it just picked up so many new fans for me. I didn't have to do anything. I just wrote the piece and sent it in and Spotify is very different. And I just didn't do anything with Spotify for years because Pandora was, was putting my music in front of people. And then I was very late to the Spotify party. I just sort of started putting energy into that platform last year and I'm trying to grow that. But um, I think Pandora, while it was knocked by a lot of people for me, it's been a really big thing. About that radio edit. So you've now decided to put our radio edit, obviously, so radio will uh, get on board of something that, uh, as you're saying, nine million other listens have had a listen of. So what is it about the radio edit? Because I, I feel a little bit, I don't know, a little bit icky sometimes when such a masterpiece like Mint Green in its six-minute-plus form needs to get a shorter version. Talk to me about the psychology of the radio edit for you as the composer, performer, and music releaser. Coming from a much more sort of just pragmatic uh, place, and again, unfortunately, this goes back into streaming, but just that Spotify, for instance, they won't give any editorial consideration to a track that's not new. So if the track is 10 years old, then it's not new, and they won't give that any consideration. But if you put out a new track, they will. And I spoke with a guy who's been very, very successful, and he said that what I should do is take you know take my most popular piece and figure out a way to put something on it to make it new 
Sometimes all people do is they say, oh, it's a remastered version or they re-release an album. It's the same album, but it's a deluxe version. It's just something to put on it to make it new. Well, okay, you know, I'll make that shorter, but then we also got to remaster. It actually sounds a lot, I think a lot better now. It really pops out. Like it just sounds a lot brighter. And uh, it was mastered in Istanbul by actually an old professor of mine in, in the conservatory who did it. But it, I hear the versions and it just really sounds a lot brighter and louder and just sort of like it's popping out of the speakers. I just knew that going into it, it was a project that I was doing to get that track in front of editors to make it new enough to get considered at that point. And there really isn't much more of a motivation than that, honestly. For you as the artist, you had to chop out three or so minutes. How did you feel about that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a piece of, of, of pretty just straight ahead minimalism. I actually just was able to take out, um, you know, in the middle, there's this sort of overarching melody that's at the apex of the track. And then there's this sort of um, restatement of the first part. And we just sort of went directly from that middle overarching melody and just cut out the recap and, and then went straight to the ending. And so it was a pretty simple edit. It didn't really disturb me too much. I mean, I have a, I have a fan and, a, and now a friend who contacted me who said that he found Mint Green and loved it and that he, you know, had to have some MRI because he might, he might have some huge heart problem and he was very nervous, but he listened, they let him listen to music and he listened to Mint Green during it. And, and that was the only thing that he could think of that would help him feel calm in the storm of all of this medical stuff he was going through. And he, we talked about it as not a fan of the four minute version, but that's because he fell in love with the six minute version. Was it separate to the album or was it part of the whole album writing process, that very track, Mint Green? That was the last one that I wrote. And I think what happens with a lot of people when they put out their first album or first full-length album, it's a lot of work over a lot of different years that could end up going into that. And so, I mean, there is some work that I had written about, I think all of the tracks were written within eight years or something like that. And that, that happened to be the last one completed. And that was one that I sort of figured out this method of composing. And it really, it just came so quick. And, and I, I, I sort of didn't even really understand what it was doing while I was writing it. It just, I know it sounds cliche to say, it sort of just wrote itself. Uh, I wish I knew how I did it because I, I would want to write something else people would enjoy as much. Um, I, I used a song that I love by the Cocteau Twins, who are a big influence on me. And I just sort of imagined like if I were sort of in the band playing along with them. Right now, what would I be playing on the piano if I were jamming along with them while they're playing this song? Four Calendar Cafe was released in 1993. One of the songs off of that was called My Truth. Talk to me about your first experience with this particular record. I think probably that just, you know, the Cocteau Twins, I mean, I, I see the thing is, is that I grew up listening to just a lot of pop music like everybody else. But I also listened and played a lot of classical music. I was a classical clarinetist. But when I went up to conservatory, they weren't talking about pop music and contemporary music division. They weren't talking about Mozart. They were talking about post-war sort of very, shall we say, a lot of unlistenable art on a pedestal kind of intellectual music. And at one point, I just reached a breaking point. And my friend worked at the record store in the town. And I just walked over. I said, man, I need you to just give me something that is going to help me, whatever. And he sort of snapped his finger and just said, Cocteau Twins. And he put on this album. Those are these, they had the empty box on the shelves. And then if you wanted to buy it, they pulled the actual disc out of the drawer and then you bought it. But he took it out, 
put the thing in the player. I had my headphones on and I heard two measures of the first song. And I said, oh my God, this is some my favorite music ever. And I love this band. That album was Heaven or Las Vegas. And then, then I, you know, I started listening to the, some of their other albums and, and Four Calendar Cafe, I think ended up be- becoming my favorite because I think it might not be the best, but to me, it's the most listenable, the most soothing and listenable. I think so much of their other stuff is brilliant too, but for whatever reason, Four Calendar Cafe just seems the most sweet, most lullaby-ish, and just the most emotionally calming of their albums. Someone once said to me, a very smart guy once said to me, because I, I went to, I was in this house in San Francisco at a party, and he said, so what's your favorite album? I said, well, my, he's like, no, 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 don't, don't say that. Everybody's favorite Cocteau Twins album is the first Cocteau Twins album that they hear because they fall in love with the sound. And then everything after that is they like the different albums. And I thought there was some truth to that. I mean, because they they're so unique. They're so special. Nobody, I think, would get the reference that that song was on top of it. The only person who got it, who said, huh, this sounds like the song My Truth, or it could be part of the song My Truth, was Simon Ramone of the Cocteau Twins. I sent it to him, and he wrote back, oh, it kind of reminds me of the song My Truth from our 1993 album, Four Calendar Cafe. He's the only person. How wonderful was it to get that correspondence? Because I'm sure you didn't tell him what tune. Maybe the bio mentioned the band. I, I didn't mention any anything about that. I just uh, I, I had met some people who were connected with him in New York uh, at a Bella Union. That's his label that he runs at an event here in New York. It was sort of like a New York Friends of Bella Union label party thing that I went to, and uh, you know everyone was just chatting about a nice guy, friendly guy. So I so I sent him a note, and I said, "Oh, this is you know something I have cooking here." But I think that Mint Green, I think that it it does appeal to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. I mean, there's definitely classical music. Like if you like classical music, you might very well like Mint Green. But if you like the Cocteau Twins or dream pop or emo rock or whatever, like there's definitely an in there. Like there's definitely a way into that music through that lens or through actually the track. I think why it went to so many people was that it ended up going on to Coldplay radio because Coldplay has some, you know, piano lines and riffs and arpeggios Mm -hmm. and stuff that's like frames a lot of their sound. So I could see why Mint Green might go there because there's that sort of like lead piano minimalism type of thing. So I could see why Coldplay fans might like it. Then there's also yoga meditation music and people who are really into that stuff. There's a way into that because it's just this chill flowing track. So there are a lot of different sort of genres that can be found in this one song. Let me get you back to the Cocteau Twins. Truth is not perfect, but it fools and confuses. Did you find your truth within the Cocteau Twins? I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the part of uh, why that song, My Truth, resonated with me so deeply. And, and I really, and I've used the method of composition where I'll take a song that I love, that I really have an emotional attachment with and sort of compose something over it as the origin of a composition. I think that contrary to virtually all their other music, there are actually understandable lyrics on that album and on My Truth. And I, I just think that one of the lines, you know, like, I am not afraid of your anger, was just something that had resonated with me and experiences in my life that, you know, I just think it's a song about connecting and, and sort of someone who has triumphed over some things. And I, I think that was what connected me with the song so deeply. So that when I listened to it, I just felt very, very close to it. And that enabled me to create something, you know, right with it. 
with that kind of anger that we're kind of talking about to actually face that anger and to be able to communicate through or around and with that anger is important and something you can do with music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that old book. It's a great book, uh, Tunesmith by Jimmy Webb. It's, it's a brilliant book. And he says, you know, unlike a lot of other people, if something happens to you and you're a songwriter, you can go write a song about it. Some people can't do that. A bus driver is not a songwriter, not a musician. He can't go write a song as a sort of remedy or as a way to work through something. Certainly not everything that I write and a lot of stuff I'm not writing on now. And actually, you know what? It, it actually confuses me when I'm not writing music that is so intense and I'm really working through something. It's sort of, maybe it's a little easier to write, but I don't feel a, such an intense emotional connection to it. And, and I think sometimes I need that. I need to be like really torn out about something so that writing the music ends up being a soothing thing to help me rise above those challenges that I may face. Like for instance, you mentioned 2016, my album Pink Jean and Green, the synth pop album, that all, every single track on that was just addressing a part of my life, you know, trying to write the song and come to some sort of resolution in my life. It is the synth pop album from you, but it also has some magnificent lines of composing as you'd expect from a pianist composer like yourself. What I enjoyed about this particular record is the bracketing of the S in Lauren's because it's that conflict of who Lauren is oh. and starts off with a Lauren Hyde and all those sort of things. So simple question, let's ask it, you're here. Who is Lauren or Lauren's? Maybe more importantly, how did they influence this record? They seem to be at the core of it. Well, I should say the first track is called Lauren Hind, and that, she's the name of a character in novels, uh, in two novels by Brett Easton Ellis, the author, who I really like. He wrote Glamorama, where she appears. He wrote The Rules of Attraction. She's this college girl, and then, you know, this actress living in New York in another novel, two or three novels later. I love his writing. I think it's just so clever. And for me, it's just like the perfect amount of art and the perfect amount of just fun read. Uh, I just find him just to be the paradigm of middle brow awesomeness. So, you know, I wrote a song just about that character and it, it's like a lot of, a lot of like first person streaming account of the college experience at a small liberal arts kind of college and, I kind of went through something like that, you know, and so like I, I sort of really understood a certain perspective or certain things that were happening there. And then as far as the song Lauren's, mm. which is not L-A-U-R-E-N apostrophe S or I mean, it's just literally a song about I think it's six different girls all named Lauren. So that's why it's called that. It was sort of like like these are six people named Lauren I've met in my life that I really crushed on and they didn't like me back and it sucked. The album we're talking about is Pink, Jean, Mint Green. What is the involvement of the great writer Neil Gaiman on this particular album? I've always wanted to ask you. I haven't been able to find the connection. I met him. I met Neil in Scotland after in a dinner. It was this sort of group dinner where people met him for dinner after this full glass concert. We were all just sort of sitting there all the way, just kind of like blown away by how awesome this concert was. And then, you know, we just started talking. And, and to be honest, I, I didn't really know who he was. He was just this guy named Neil. I mean, like, I really didn't know him. But I had had for a while this idea, and it's funny, we happened to be in Scotland. I read this comic book growing up called The Dino and another one called The Dandy, and those are British comics. My nanny uh, was Scottish. 
and she'd go back and visit Christmas, go back over the summer, whatever. And she'd come back and she brought my brother and me. She brought, brought us, you know, comic books. They came out with these hardcover annuals every year and she brought them for us. And I loved them. I understood them, but they were also kind of a little different, you know, because the outfits were different and things they said were different. And, you know, the sport was cricket. And I don't know. I, just, I loved it. And I, and I had an idea for a few years to write a song about that somehow. I didn't know how I would do it. I sort of like wrote the music for it, but I didn't really know what I was doing with lyrics. And, you know, so I met this guy, I traded info and I sent him some of my music and he wrote back. He liked a couple of pieces of music I had sent him. And almost as a joke, I said, oh, you know, do you write lyrics for music? At that point, I had read that he's this, you know, big novelist, you know, has written screenplays and, you know, all the kinds of stuff. I said, do you ever write lyrics? And he said, yeah, I do. Actually, I recently did a project with my wife, Amanda Palmer and Ben Folds. It's called Eight and Eight, and the goal was to write and record eight songs in eight hours. So I read them, and they were really good. They were clever. They were fun. And I thought, you know, I should try to see if he could write the story about an American kid who reads these British comic books when he's little. And that's sort of what the song's about. It could be about all these other things, too. But I, I told him, and he loved it. He said, oh, this is great. This is sort of like living in this quasi-alien comic universe and of course now i know him like better i know his work better so i realized that that would be a concept that would really turn him on i said something like oh do you want to write the words first or do you do you want me to write the music first he said your fault yeah i said all right well you know i wrote the music and i sort of worked up the version sent it to him and he really loved it they sent me the lyrics i also note that today is william shatner's 90th birthday oh i saw that yeah William Shatner worked with Ben Folds and Henry Rollins and everyone else on a separate album, which I'll include in the show notes because I very much like that album. Who are the contemporary pianist composers that Andrew Shapiro relates to and maybe includes as peers? You know, that's an awesome question, and I wish I, you know, a more voluminous answer for you. I, I will say that someone that I consider to be a close friend is a guy named Andrew Chubb who lives in Newcastle, Australia. Uh, I think I think actually he liked my track Mint Green and like bought the sheet music off my website. And I said, thanks. And he said, oh, I'm a pianist composer. Here's my website. And we, you know, and we talked. And actually, if you want to bring it all around into McDonald's, there was one weekend I was away and he was coming into New York for the first time. He had never visited America before. This was during the McDonald's gig and I needed someone to sub that gig for me. So I said, Andrew, why don't you do it? And he went literally straight from the airport to downtown Manhattan, the block from Ground Zero. And like, had his luggage with him just after getting off the plane and went straight there and like met the manager. She let him up on the piano loft and he's like playing this four hour gig minutes after arriving in America for the first time. And you know, the poor guy, but he rolled with it. He loved it. And we hung out. And then I went in 2014 to Australia, my wife and I, and then we played a concert together in Newcastle. He's, you know, like a total Philip Glasshead. Like, I think he liked that, you know, I was, you know, former, Philip Glass intern, and I was friends with Michael Reisman, a producer, and, and he really knew who these people were and really respected that. And he liked my music. I like his music. I like Sally Whitwell, too. She's awesome. She's known, I think, in Australia as a classical pianist and composer. She lives in Sydney. Andrew lives in Newcastle. He lives in, the in a house just a few blocks from the beach. He's got a grand piano in it. He has a nice little recording rig set up. And sometimes I'll send him music, email him the PDFs, I'll print them out, record it, and send it back to him. He's one I, I like, and I like Sally, too. Sally's awesome. 
but she was in the States. She was like working some like a children's choir, like America tour to perform. And I joke with her. I said, you know, I, I really wanted to meet you. And there was just like only one little slot. And I said, you know, you're like the only person that I've ever woken up at like six o'clock in the morning and took the subway into midtown Manhattan to have breakfast at 7 a.m. without a diner. Because that was like the only 45 minutes she had to meet me before they took off to go someplace else. And then we hung out in Sydney. She's a great spirit, very cool, just a very loving, kind person who's a killer musician. Speaking about yeah. the Australian from Newcastle that you got to sub for you at your then regular gig at McDonald's, very close to Ground Zero. People visiting Ground Zero who are looking for a fast food fix were literally walking in on a Sunday between noon and four into that very concert space. Is it as emotional as I think it would be? On August 11th, 2001, I was working a, an office job, like a temp job where they put you in a place for a week or whatever. And I was working on the 105th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. So exactly one month before mm. I was there, there were people at that company who perished in that. Um, and actually, I was working on Wall Street at a different job, not, not directly in the World Trade Center and not like right by it, but I was a few blocks away when that happened. I was one of those people got out of the office and had the dust all over me. And like, I walked all the way home over the bridge uh, into Brooklyn. So I, I mean, for me, you know, my 9-11 experience is one that, um, you know, it's funny. I just saw someone with an umbrella that said 9-11 tribute museum, whatever they have that. And I said to this guy, uh, I said, you know, I just, I really have no interest in going there. And I'm not saying other people shouldn't. I mean, people want to go and see what's going on, learn the history and whatever. I certainly don't begrudge everyone to do that, but it's not something that interests me. I took me a very long time, actually, at night to fall asleep after that because I kept, you know, a lot of times I kept thinking, like months later, a year later, two years later, what if I wasn't there on August 11, 2001, but I was there on September 11, 2001 at that company on the 105th floor? Mm. I mean, that view was breathtaking. I mean, helicopters are flying around below you and you could see so far, it was unbelievable. By the time I got that gig, that started in 2004, about two and a half years had gone by between 9-11 and I got that gig. You know, of course it was a block over. So if I took a break, you know, I take a walk a little bit, you know, step out for 15 minutes, stretch my legs, take a break from playing because four hours is a long time to play straight. There were a bunch of times I did it. I, I sort of like, as a badge of honor, I wanted to just like sit and literally play the piano for four hours straight. You know, I would walk over and, and generally speaking, it was just there. It was a big construction site. And every now and then, you know, like a, a controversy would come up that would suddenly bring renewed attention to it. And I'd see like, oh, there's something going on over there a block away and I'd sort of wander over and just look and see, oh, okay, that's why this is going on or whatever. But I mean, that and Occupy Wall Street, which was like on the block where I was, that also happened there. It wasn't something I consciously thought about while I was like playing the piano, writing music, like, oh, I'm by, I'm a block away from ground mm. zero. Now that I actually think about it, I mean, the article that came out, on the one hand, it's very simple, but on the other hand, it's incredibly complicated. And forget about 9-11, forget about Brent Zero even entering the article. But if you think about a person who, let's say they, they're a classically trained artist, and pretty much they're not necessarily getting booked. Bookers aren't booking them. People aren't paying you. And so 
in one sense, like the only people that I found that were willing to pay me money to play my music was McDonald's. I said, you know, it's just it's accessible, modern, classical music. And I, I said, I, I intend to play my own music as opposed to, you know, show tunes, jazz standards, whatever, which other people played on different days. But I just, you know, want to play my own music and met the manager. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, I started playing. And about half hour later, he came out. I saw him. He was just looking up at me. It was locked. The piano is a loft over the doorway. He sort of looked up to me for like about 30 seconds and listened and sort of nodded his head, turned around and walked back. So he came out and listened to me and said, okay, yeah, that guy sounds fine. The article talks about, you know, okay, I'm playing at the McDonald's, but it's very complicated because you're talking about, well, McDonald's, and then you're talking about art music, and then you're talking about the commerce of art music, and then you're talking about a conservatory trained person playing in a McDonald's. John Cage once said that if something's boring, just keep repeating it, eventually it becomes interesting. I mean, so I suppose one could talk about anything and just keep talking about it. Eventually they could find things that were interesting. I mean, it was interesting to me. I found the opportunity and I played and I turned it into something and I did. And I met people from all over the world because Ground Zero was there, but I never, ever recall in those nine years, anybody ever talking to me. You know, I, I was amenable to people chatting me up if they saw me, you know, coming out of the loft and, and talking and, you know, chat, chat with people. But, but people were, oh yes, we came here to see Ground Zero. And I mean, this was even before the, the museum was, but, you know, just pay our respects and whatever, you know, but I mean, it, you know, people weren't like crying and hugging me and stuff because of what they had experienced block away. It was more like, yeah, we came here to, to see it uh, for ourselves. Mm. We're visiting from Ljubljana, Slovenia. I remember one time I heard this whole group of kids clapping after I played a song. I mean, this 30 kids clapping and I'm such a jaded person that I thought, I thought that these people were like mocking me somehow by clapping for me. I went out and they like applauded for me again. And it was, they were like the kindest people. It was a junior high school from South Dakota and they were in town visiting and they read about that this guy was playing the piano in McDonald's and they wanted to see it. And they also, you know, went to ground zero and they were like, they were so nice. I felt so sad. I felt so bad that I thought that they were like goofing on me by clapping rather than they were just genuinely liked it and clapped and sort of thought it was cool. And uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And I also met a bunch of people that I ended up staying with or visiting when I would be in their city one day. This one uh, chemical engineering professor from University of Ljubljana was there and I ended up talking with him and he, he was in town with his wife who was doing something else that day and said, oh, well, if you ever come here, you know, let me know. We'll put you up. And I said, but I want to tell you, I'm the sort of person that actually will take you up on that invitation. And I did. An executive from Dolce & Gabbana from in from Italy, saw me playing with the wife and I got a phone call from them for their like in-house magazine. They wrote about me. And then at the same time I'm playing, you know, uh, the McDonald's, I mean like Dolce & Gabbana is like high end stuff and then playing in the next. So, you know, it's, it's just all, all started feeling very normal. Like I mm. sort of lost the perspective in a sense where this was completely normal to me, what I was doing. What we'll include in the show notes is the TEDx talk that you did, because that obviously just shows the international response that you got as well. Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide. What does the Grateful Dead mean to Andrew Shapiro? Well, I love, love them so much. I mean, I, I should say I, I never got into them post-1995. I never heard really any of their music. I never went to any of the concerts, you know, after that. I, and I'm not saying they're bad. It's just when Jerry passed away, I, mean, I just, I don't know, to me, I, I just wasn't interested anymore. I, 
you know, like a lot of people, I, I got into them when I was younger and it was more of just like, like a cool thing to be in, involved in and stuff. You see people like older teenagers with like tie-dye t-shirts and deadheads talking about dead concerts and stuff like that. And I finally was in high school, I went to a show. It just blew me away. It was just really one of the most powerful musical experiences because it's a very unified experience as, as a fan. It's like sort of everyone's on the same wavelength, just like digging the music you can really lose yourself in that music and really participate in that music where you're so into that, that the rest of the world disappears and you're only into that. One thing that I love about them, they were so innovative in terms of the way that they were such a fusion of very different genres of music that sort of got synthesized through their electronic sound. I mean, Bluegrass music, folk music, jazz music, pop music, disco music. You know, what was it? Was it 40% of the songs were covers. I mean, like that, I got into Bob Dylan because these dead covers. Last show I saw was in Atlanta in 1995. Their encore was Lucy in the Sky with Diamond, the uh, Beatles. And, I mean, like no one could believe it. We couldn't believe it. So here's Jerry Garcia plucking out the line and, and singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was fascinating to me at least. I mean, if anyone heard my music, they would think, oh, yeah, he clearly is influenced by the Grateful Dead. But I will say that the Grateful Dead, the Cocktail Twins, Steely Dan, and Philip Glass, I think, are my favorite artists. And one thing I think that is telling about that, or at least for me, is that they're all genres of one. Philip Glass is a genre of one. They created their own genre. Steely Dan created their own genre. The Cocktail Twins created their own genre. I still listen to deadlists.com. That's every pretty much every bootleg Every Dead show streaming online. I still listen to them. I have my favorite shows, some of my favorite songs, you know. I, I love them. I mean, it's great music to put on when I have paperwork or clean my office or something like that. Let's talk about Philip Glass because you were an intern with Philip Glass. What does that mean? When did it occur? How did it inform the music even further? Well, first, let me say before I lose track of mine, you said something about the complexity or understanding or how to wrap one's brain around like it's new, but it's classical. And how do you kind of do that? And for me, one of my favorite pieces of business films were for the movie, The Hours, which came out in 2002. And I was at the office and Michael, you know, he, he had conducted or played piano on that soundtrack and he played me, you know, Oh, here, we just recorded this in London and it's coming out, you know, some for movie and okay, cool, whatever. And I saw it. And the last time I saw it, I, I said to him, I said, for me, in my musical journey, like the mind crunch, but there's a different term that I could use, of sort of being brainwashed and gaslighted by unwittingly cruel composition professors who are trying to tell you that the music you love is worth nothing and only philosophically charged art on a pedestal music or whatever is the only thing that's valid and there's no point or whatever, you know, I tell you, some of the most exciting, actually, think about Branford Marsalis performing with the Grateful Dead. And uh, this one recording I loved. And like this one song, it's just like E major seven for two measures, A for two measures. E major seven for two measures, A for two measures. And it is amazing. And I remember walking in and telling my teacher once, I said, oh, I'm, I'm listening to this thing. It's so great. And all it is is E major seven for two bars and A for two bars. But it's got this. And then his response was, oh, that sounds boring. Like, how about a student comes in and is excited about something why do you have to use that as an avenue to be an asshole? Mm. But what I, what I told Philip the last time I saw him was, 
I said, uh, and 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 my understanding is it still is. It's the most sold album that he's ever created is the soundtrack for the hours. I told him, I said, you know, for me, that album represents the final nail in the coffin of the artificial divide between art music and non-art music that existed in my life. And he sort of like stopped and sort of looked at me for a few seconds. There was this pregnant pause and he just said, glad to hear you say that. Because it's accessible, modern classical music. But there's a lot going on in there and it's not easy to do. His music runs like a Swiss watch. His ability to create harmony and to create a richness of harmonic and, and he's just, he's a wonderful energy and a great spirit. And I think, you know, it's like, that's what the internship experience, you know, often is about. It's like, you just sort of get to hang around and be around an energy and hope some of it rubs off on you. When I had that experience, I just finished school and like, it sort of, helped me figure out what kind of musician I wanted to be or could be. Because I saw that, oh, it was possible to just write your music and also work out putting this music with all these other people and meet interesting people and put your music in the films or dance or theater or whatever. This was not art on a pedestal. This was not academic composition. This was like someone who was out doing Clearly. Philip Glass was saying yes, where other people in your life, musically speaking, were saying no. Definitely. He was saying yes. And, and one example of that is like, I wrote this piece. It's actually on the same album that Nate Green was first on. It's called Quiet Kissing. And I did meet with another composer who I had met. He gave a seminar and there, there was another composer. He's a you know prominent composer who lives in the city. He just wasn't a nice person. He just sat there and like lambasted me for going to school where I had gone. And I said, well, you know, I graduated six years ago. I don't think I need to continue revisiting the issue as to where I went to school. And I said, oh, I wanted to show you this piece because what I wanted to learn from this person, because he definitely had those skills, like, does this work or do I need to go and get some more training in counterpoint or, or whatever? I just wanted to say, well, I said, he begrudgingly took the page from my hand and looked at it. Well, it's not interesting to me. It starts in, you know, C-sharp minor, then it goes to F-sharp major. It's not a big deal, whatever. Yeah, I mean, he just wasn't a nice guy. On the one hand, I thought he was nice because he had me over to his house and he spent time with me. But then he was like a total jerk. On the other hand, you know, Philip was completely open and to a number of times showing him music and talking to him about it. And he said yes when other people said no. What was your involvement with Falls the Shadow? Because you've worked in film scores, I know, but I want to talk about dance and composing for dance. I have written original music for dance productions, but that was one of these calls that a composer just always dreams about getting where the phone rings, you answer, and it's the Guggenheim calling you because they want something from you. That doesn't happen every day. I I have a friend who, who made a joke. He's a funny guy. He said, you should have said, like, the Guggenheim, I'm not familiar. Is that in New York? Is there something you could send me in writing? I'm not comfortable on the phone uh, as, a, as a joke, you know. But, uh, no, there's a, it actually was very simple. It, it's, it's what one dreams about. Some, you know, the choreographer had found this one piece of music of mine, and they wanted to use it as part of a dance that was in the atrium of the Guggenheim, you know, that iconic sort of cylindrical indoor atrium. This guy, Daniil Simkin, who's a very famous, prominent dancer. At that point, I believe he was a principal dancer of the New York Ballet. I think he's now in Germany doing that. I mean, he's huge. And there was a choreographer doing it for dancers. And they had these outfits that were designed by Dior. And they had lighting and they had all this cool lighting design and, and all this stuff. And all I had to do was just send them the track and do the paperwork. 
when you're doing the original composition, may it be for dance or for film, where you've had the opportunity of seeing maybe a performance or a script or a treatment and get a chance to do the music from that point? I always kind of thought it and wanted it. I mean, and you can see who set the example for me. It was like, yeah, you can write music, and then years later it ends up getting used in something. That was the goal all along. It was like, I'm going to write this for me and only for me. And then the goal is to then go shopping around and get it used and stuff is one slice of my, you know, publishing efforts. You know, I also write custom stuff for specific things as well. Sometimes it's very surprising. Like, I mean, also through McDonald's, I caught this Polish journalist's eyes and she wrote an article about me in this Warsaw newspaper. And, and I ended up becoming friends with her and she introduced me to all these like younger Polish artist people. And I ended up being a lot of Polish friends and making a number of trips to Poland and hanging out with them. And one girl, she, I didn't even know she was doing it. She just took a piano piece of mine and put it to this dance that she had done with costumes and this cool like stagecraft and design. And it was beautiful. And they used my music and it. it was so cool to see that. She had just taken the music, which was just this piano instrumental and like took it to this grand place where she made this beautiful video and had this whole dance performance you know, to that. So that was awesome to see that. For those that are interested in that aspect of Andrew Shapiro's life, Airbox Publishing, I'll put a link in the show notes and you can follow through there. If it's a big or a small movie, I'm assuming, Andrew, you'd like to be part of it if it's the right connection, the right fit. Another song off one of the albums, and it's about how you compose music for people or based upon people, the profiling music that you do. Talk to us about the opening cut. It's called John Mayer. He had a column for. I mean, then this was years ago. Esquire? Um, yeah, exactly yeah. right, John. Yeah, Esquire magazine. And I wasn't a subscriber. I think I saw it at someone's house and I was just flipping through it. I saw like, oh, and apparently he had a monthly column writing about, you know, the life of a singer and a songwriter and just, you know, stuff like that. And it was cool. And in this one, you know, I think it was like a one page long kind of thing. He said, all right, here's the thing. I wrote these lyrics for a song, but I never ended up writing the song. So here's my challenge to everybody as songwriters. Like, use these lyrics and write your own song with them, and then send them in. And then we'll have a contest, and we'll pick winners who did the best song or whatever. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to win because I'm going to write some minimalist synth sculpture rather than some, like, indie rock song or something like that. I'll write synth. But I thought I'd win either way because I'll create a new song. That's victory. And the title of the song was called The Giveaway. That was his thing, and the words were there. And so, okay, so I just wrote a song using those words. And I sent it in and I never heard anything from them, but, but I liked the song. I mean, I put it out in the column. He said something like, you can even tell people that we wrote a song together. And so I thought that was sweet. So then I had the song to give away. And then when I was at McDonald's, I sometimes would like take other music of mine, like the string piece or a song that I wrote and sort of just play an instrumental piano version of that as part of what I was doing at McDonald's. And so I just brought that music with me and I just started playing it. And then it basically is like the song, the giveaway, but for piano, but it's not like a piano version of that song. My version of the song, The Giveaway, that he wrote the lyrics for, that I wrote, quote unquote, with John Mayer, was the jumping off point for a new piece of instrumental piano music. And then I didn't have a title for it. And then I had written other music with just like the name of a person. So I said, all right, I'll call this John Mayer. So that's what happened. I remember like a couple, a few months ago, I got an email from someone that just said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you didn't write the giveaway. John Mayer did. And I said, thank you for writing. Yes, the idea for this came through this column that I pointed her to. 
I said, there are probably more than a thousand versions of the giveaway. And mine is one of them. And she wrote back, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. I see. Okay. I didn't know. Thank you. Bye. Let's talk about production. Numbers, Colors, and People was produced by Michael Wiesman. And you mentioned before him in connection, I believe, of Philip Glass. He's the musical director of the Philip Glass Ensemble. He's Philip Glass's principal collaborator on virtually, as far as conducting and developing and producing his music. I mean, he's conducted virtually every film score that he's done. He's performed with the group since, I think, like 1974. He is a synthesizer technician. He's like a scientist. He's a genius. He's someone that I met when I was interning there. And I, I liked him. I, I liked the music he was making. He was developing a piece of music right then when I was there and he was using you know, some synthesizers and I was just sort of starting to get into that. And I was watching him sort of take a score that Philip had written and then orchestrate it and with a synthesizer and like work up a recording of it. And I got to see that from the beginning, from the notes on the page to the final product. And, and I think he also has just brilliant ears. And so like, I know I can trust him. Like, I really feel that like, if he's in the booth and I'm recording, like, and if there's a good take or not a good take or whatever, like if he thinks it's good, like I feel comfortable about that. If he doesn't, then I, you know, I don't think so. He's produced all my piano albums and, you know, we became friends too. I mean, we bike around the city together and we hang out and we've been friends for now, you know, like 20 years. You mentioned cycling. Are you a bit of a, a mammal or what kind of cyclist are you? Mammal? Middle-aged man in Lycra is what we call them in Australia. Middle-aged man, like, well, I'll say one thing is, do you know what a Romeo is? Father retired and he has this like, you know, like people retire, they have like a Friday lunch meet. We're like, oh, they meet up with a group of people. Not everyone shows up every week. Friday afternoons, they meet for lunch. Retired old men eating out. In terms of your experience of New York City as a cyclist, how it might give you the headspace to write music, is that the case? Maybe when I was younger, I mean, you know, now the Williamsburg Bridge, which connects Manhattan to Brooklyn, I had read maybe last year an article, more bicycles go over that bridge every day than any other bridge in America. They redid it and put this great bike path on it. And uh, I just thought that was interesting. I like riding. Michael's really into riding. I think he's more into it than I am. You were talking about Romeo, your father being a Romeo. Your father was an attorney general or he's in the legal profession, so I can imagine some pretty intense long lunches. He was never anything close to being attorney general, no. Your father was an attorney. Yeah, he, he was an attorney. My mom was a now-retired school teacher and my, my father was a now-retired attorney. So your father was an attorney, but he wasn't, like your mother, was not a musician as well. So where does music fit in See, at those young mystery. years? Yeah, no, no one, I don't know. I mean, obviously there are like families where like everyone's musical and, you know, my, you know, you go to Nashville and you see a performance and someone comes out and performs and then they have a cousin and a nephew and a niece who also comes out and plays the banjo because they, they you know, every, oh, and here's my cousin. He's a great songwriter too. And then they come out and start performing, especially in Nashville. It's always like that. Everyone has a cousin who comes out and plays and joins them. I don't know. I, I just got into it. There was no clue. There was no expectation whatsoever that I would end up being where I was. In fact, when I was finishing high school, I didn't want to become a musician because I was a clarinetist and I didn't want to do that professionally because I didn't see the prospects of that as being particularly attractive to me. I went to normal college and then I also took started taking like music theory and like I met this really great teacher and I started writing some music and, and I sort of like became reincarnated as a composer and suddenly possibilities 
opened up for me that I never saw before. Were you into tennis as a teenager? I was. I did play tennis. Right. At what level? Yeah, was I joked with some friends. I said, I want, and we were talking about, you know, accessible music or whatever. I said, you know, I want people who play tennis to listen to my music, not just academics. I mean, I think I even said to someone, like, I want people who play tennis and then have cottage cheese and cantaloupe to listen to my music. My son, he's four and he plays. As you said, you, you keep very fit with a bit of bike riding, a bit of tennis back in the day. How fit would you say you are? The last year has been challenging, mm-hmm. obviously for a variety of reasons, and one of which has been my fitness. But it's getting warmer now. It's springtime, and I'll pull myself back together. You mentioned Newcastle before, and there was something you particularly liked about Newcastle, and that is as a kid on the beach. Well, I grew up on uh, in, in New York, just north of uh, New York City, about – 20 miles north of Manhattan, uh, northeast of Manhattan, on the northern edge of the Long Island Sound. My house was like a block away from the water. But so, you know, I mean, I, I was on the beach playing when I was like little, like in second grade, and my mom learned about the music class. You know, the recorder was what the instrument that people played when they were little. You know, someone told her there, and then she said, do you want to do that? I said, yeah, sure, you know, I'll do it. And I, it just sort of made sense to me. I could just play it, and then... The teacher said, oh, you know, I also teach clarinet here and I think you should, you know, continue. And, you know, so it's kind of a pretty obvious like transition from recorder into clarinet. And there I was. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask you about sheet music because people can go to andrewshapiro.com and actually purchase some of your music to play themselves, which is a great initiative. And it'd be great if more musicians across the genres did that as well. I sell a lot of Linfrey and sheet music. People just, I guess, through Pandora or whatever, they find a song and they find their way to me and they find the sheet music and they buy it. And it never gets old. It's always just so exciting. And I'm so excited when I see that someone bought it. It's like, it just never, ever gets old when someone buys it. People like that song. People love that. I get notes. I get long emails from people talking about their experiences. I get a guy saying, I was in the, I was in, outside Lyon in France where I live. And I was, and this guy says, I was breaking up with a girlfriend and I was in the parking lot of a train station. She was there and she was dropping me off at the train and we were talking. And then this piece of piano music came on on the radio and it was like incredible. And I couldn't figure out what it was. No, we didn't know what it was, but then I left and then I hunted it down online and found out what track it was. And it's mint green and it like completely changed it. It was like, I mean, I get these stories from people that are so cool like like that, where it sort of like becomes a soundtrack to a specific memory they have. I wrote another song in, a, in an album, like two albums later called Royal Purple, which is a color, it's a shade of purple. It sort of has a mint green light quality to it too, but I don't know. I mean, I think it was just because it was just pure, it just, I just banged that out really quick and it just worked with that Cotton Cyan, it just happened. I, I Maybe the less I think about it and just try to write music, maybe, maybe I'll hit upon it, something that resonates as much as this one. It's very exciting. I mean, it's something that I was always hoping for was was to make music that I would really, really put my soul into and that would touch other people. I just got a note on Instagram from some woman in Brazil and she said, oh man, you put your soul into it. Thank you so much. I just launched a Patreon. People are writing me for that and I'm just starting that going and it's exciting. Patreon is patreon.com. Slash Andrew Shapiro. What song? Because your song. Andrew Shapiro, Mint Green, is that for all these people? But what song is it for Andrew Shapiro 
that's hit you like that? What's my main dream? Yeah, that's a very, that's a really, really good question. In my first year at school, uh, when I would feel, I, and I won't say this is because I don't, I don't look at this as being like a seminal like song for me, but like I used to put on, you know, Miles Davis kind of blue when I was just feeling down. And in fact, I remember like I got back like a day from break earlier and then I bumped into my roommate, like on the other side of campus, he had like gotten to school, gotten back to the dorm room and unpacked his bags. And he's like, oh my God, are you doing okay? I said, how do you know? I said, because I went to the stereo to put the CD in and I took it out and the, the CD that was in there was kind of blue. So I know that something was going on when you were down. But uh, my truth is one of them. Cocteau Twins, one of them, I'd say maybe the Heaven or Las Vegas album, the first track on Heaven or Las Vegas might be one of them. As far as the Grateful Dead is concerned, I don't know, Terrapin Station. I'd have to think about that. It's a good exercise, though. I think I'd have to think about that. Here are, here are two of them. And I don't, I think in a way, because there's the nostalgia factor, like picture driving in like a Chevy in 1983 or 1982, like driving in the New York area on some like family driving into the city for something and the top 40 radios on and whatever. And I'll tell you that song, Eye in the Sky by Alan Parsons Project. That was like a hit song. And that song just has a sound. There's just a world to that song. I'd say, I'd say those songs. I'd say Sailing by Christopher Cross. Sailing is a, was a big song for me because that was like the hit song when I was little. If I hear that song, it just, you know, brings me back to a certain place. So maybe it's the nostalgia factor. I don't know if this is going to make me sound really like pretentious or something, but like from a classical perspective, I would say that Prokofiev's eighth piano sonata, the first movement, was killer for me. That was big. It's an incredible piece. It's so crazy. I mean, it's slow and chill and whatever, but it's just so odd. I saw that performed by some Russian pianists when I was a student at Oberlin, he was there performing it, and I had never heard it before. And I was like, what on earth is this? So I heard that, and I'd also say the Franz Liszt, the D minor piano sonata, I'd say those two are my favorite two piano pieces of all time. When you're sitting behind the piano or in front of the keys, let's say, what's going through your mind before that first note is played? Well, I mean, I think I started out writing music where it was very like note to note, measure to measure, chord to chord to chord to chord, or something like that. But now I, I don't necessarily tend to to see it as much that way. I tend to start out generally with the whole song. Like I sort of write out the form of the whole thing first and then I start filling it in and go local. Like I'm not like starting with like one note or with a melody, you know? I sort of already have a sense of like a sketch of like, this is kind of what this is. I go from big to small rather than small to ending up making a longer piece. I generally, yeah, I generally tend to have a much larger form in mind and then fill in. So an editing yeah. process as such. A lot of it is, you know, and a lot of it, what I remember talking about composing is writing something and then you write it down and then you interact with it. You talk with it and you interact with it and then you alter it and alter it and alter it and alter it. And you're interacting with what you wrote and then you're putting another layer of consciousness on it. And maybe another layer of consciousness and another layer of consciousness. So it really becomes something much deeper. And the process of interacting and changing is the education. One of your albums back from 2012 is called 100 Houses, uh, Gatsby Meets Caulfield. And it is based, I believe, on this idea that you would read together often the Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye. Um, for whatever reason, I fell into 
just reading them back to back once a year. I mean, I, I didn't say like in the calendar, hey, time to read The Great Gatsby, but you know, roughly once a year, I started thinking about like, I mean, but who am I to mess with The Great Gatsby or, or Catcher in the Rye? I mean, it's almost like sacrilegious to even think that I could like do anything with that. But I think I hit upon a way that I could make art. I, I knew that I wanted to make some music about those novels or about my experience with those novels. I just thought there was something there that I could make some music about those novels or about my experiences with those novels. And I really took a while to figure it out, but then I figured it out. What the album was about was what would happen if Jay Gatsby and Holden Caulfield had the opportunity to sit down and meet and talk. And the conversation was about how they would do things differently if they had the opportunity to do them over again. And that's what that album's about. And I wrote seven songs about that. Right now, I'm just writing, I'm starting to write a lot of more string music because that's really, I'm, I wrote a string quartet. I just got a recorder in Budapest by this group that they were great. And I'm writing now a, a short album of string quartet music. And then I'm working on like a, a larger string orchestra piece, which I'm actually sort of in my mind thinking about it kind of like as like sort of even like a symphony, just like writing a large piece of music for 40 strings or something like that. Right now, that's what my focus is on is writing string music. But I'm also writing piano music and I'm also writing songs. I just wrote music for a, a short, very sweet, a small, like independent film about a chess teacher in New York. It's about this really humble guy who teaches chess to kids. And I wrote the music for it. And I think it turned out really nice. And they're like a little clarinet sonata for the film. I like it. Andrew Shapiro, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Thank you, John. AndrewShapiro.com is where you can find Andrew online. Next time, we'll be catching up with Easy Day. Femininity is something that everyone has within them, whether you're a man or a, or a female. You know, it's not something that's defined by gender. I think we're told that it is through society, but it's, I think of femininity as more of an energy and a feeling. Yeah, I guess in those spaces of when I'm just really vulnerable and allowing myself to be and be present, I think of that as feminine energy, which I think we all have the capacity of doing. I guess that's really the feeling that comes through this song. It's very much connected to that femininity. That's Easy Day, our guest next time on Radio Notes. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Radio Notes.